Well, one is like it get us to a proof of concept. Without that funding, well, there's there's really no basis to a company. There's no a there's no foundation for the company to begin with. There's no, there's no technology to begin with. Uh, I'm not building an app. I'm a deep tech person. So, but there's no company period without that initial um, investment and trust from the government on the academic uh, research. This is undiluted. The show about the amazing founders and companies who've used government R&D grants, contracts, and sales to build their products, grow their companies, and keep their equity. We are Katie Person and Gene Kesselman from MIT and Jeff Warzen from FedScout. And on today's show, how a postdoc went from bench researcher to founder with help and funding from the National Science Foundation and the Navy. The amount of data we're generating is growing exponentially. We're sitting right now at 50 zettabytes of data Right now, it's predicted to get to 175 zettabytes by 2025. Silicon is not an infinite resource as, as like gasoline and everything. And, and so we're going to reach a point where we need to start looking at what we have and what can we do to supplement the gap between data storage versus data generation. And so that was the something that a lot of folks got interested in. We, we got interested in the beginning because it was a very, very niche area for me. It's wacky when I first heard it. And so I really like wacky stuff. Just to make this real for me, can you give an example of what a, either an active customer or maybe a prospective customer, <laughs> tactically what their problem is and how you would solve it? Yeah, so a really good example would be, for example, if you have data sets that you just want to keep, but you don't want to delete. Those are those data sets that you need to spend money on them, putting AWS servers will force you to bleed money monthly. Or if you, and, and that data pool grows and we estimate 60% of the data generated by the world is archival nature, meaning you rarely access, if ever, those data sets. You need to figure out, you want to make sure that you're not paying for that over, over a period of time. You just want to make sure one, one, one-stop payment and that's it. But then there's also the need for fidelity over long periods of time, because these are types of data sets that might, may be very important to you. And those types of the customer profiles that fit in this category of archival data storage, because they have a pain point that they have to bleed money over a period of time just to store their data very expensively. If you try to use any of the cloud storage, if you want something that permanent, but very high fidelity over periods of time, that's where DNA comes in. And you don't have to look far to, to find evidence that you know, DNA has a long track record. You've seen fossils that were from millennia ago, thousands of years ago. So definitely that's why there's a lot of interest in DNA because we know it's a very stable molecule. I know how to read it even after a thousand years. And I think that's where there, it hits a lot of the categories that a lot of folks who have this very um, important data set. It hits three different things. One is longevity of the data. Two is the fidelity of the data over time. And three, obsolescence. Itself can be obsolete. Yeah, so another use case would be the movie industry wherein they have this large catalog. I've spoken to someone uh, in the movie industry that have this large catalog of films. And because the movie industry moving to higher resolution, like 8K resolution, the amount of data they're generating will be, is gonna be ex exceedingly huge they, you can't even think about it today because the movie industry doesn't care just the the final cut they care about every clip every reel that they can gather because you know you never know when you're going to use some of those snapshots and archives of films that we want to see still after maybe 100 years you know who would, wouldn't want to go back and 
and we'll actually say Jurassic Park after 100 years. Yeah, Jurassic Park seems like an apt movie to uh, address. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, was that at all part of your curiosity? Now that when you watch that movie now, does it seem more plausible, less plausible? Yeah, I've always thought it was plausible. It's just it's so funny that I got it that a lot of the things that whenever I explain DNA data storage, like I always had to go to Jurassic Park because this, this is like exactly it, it's art becomes reality. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> so I, at the most conceptual level, I understand how electronic data storage works. You have a trend, you have a semiconductor and it's set either for the zero or a one. And by looking at strings of zeros and ones, they can present, they can encode complex procedures and, and language. Is molecular based data storage the same zero and one binary encoding? Or is there something just fundamentally different happening? Yeah, at the core level, it's still using a representation of zeros and ones. In, in that case, for molecular data storage, you might want to represent a zero with some molecule and then one with a different molecule. Or one molecule could represent, say, a series of zeros and ones or, or something like that. So there's a lot of different ways to do encoding. But at the fundamental level, you're just, you're, at molecular data storage is using, instead of using the zeros and ones that you typically use to represent a bit of data, you would use molecules. It can be a voltage change in, in a semiconductor, but for a molecular data storage platform, it's just literally a different molecule. And so that's like a, that's the paradigm difference in between those two, te two, technolo two technologies. And, and the fundamental level, it's just, it's just the same. The only difference is that instead of using hundreds of atoms to store one bit, you're using a collection of atoms, maybe around 20 to 30 atoms to, to represent a bit. And that like, that creates this idea of this is where you can put the entire internet in a sugar cube. And that's the reason why is because you can be representing a bit with a collection of atoms, not like a few atoms, rather than a thousand or a million atoms that represent a bit in a typical semiconductor device. That is that true that you could, that there are enough atoms in a sugar cube to encode all the internet's data? The theoretical density of DNA is 455 exabytes per gram. So I don't understand what that means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, for, so an exabyte, an exabyte is a thousand petabytes, uh, and a thousand petabytes, a petabyte is a thousand terabytes. It's a million terabytes to get to an exabyte. And the whole internet is essentially like hundred, let's just say 50, exabyte, uh, 50 exabytes for now, right now. Then that's, yeah, that's basically yeah, 50, 50 million hard drives, one terabyte hard drives to, to store the entire internet. You can push that down, down to a sugar cube. That's a like the density of DNA. You can, the dry DNA, you can put it basically in the, in the size of a sugar cube. Wow, that's astounding. So to, so, so to run this example forward, so, Let's say that Hollywood wants to put Jurassic Park, so they want to store it via your platform, via mm -hmm. the DNA-based storage model. It, it, conceptually, what would that look like? Yeah, so I mean, the, that process, essentially, you start with um, the, the file that you want to a bit stream, which is the zeros and ones. And then you do an encoding step where you convert the zeros and ones to the letters of the DNA, A, C, T, and Gs. And then once you have that string of ACPs and Gs, you, you then synthesize those DNA that typical, the same strands we use to say, we, we, we used to write DNA right now for COVID tests or using PCR, same technology that, and essentially write those strings of ACPs and Gs into a pool of letters. 
And once you've had that, then you can store it, fossilize it like what we do and barcode them so that you can retrieve them later on for random access. Say you want to, I mean, you want to have a Netflix of, of films, not just Jurassic Park, right? You want, you don't want just one. And so you have a collection of films and essentially being able to pull out Jurassic Park out of that pool is very important. And then if you want to retrieve it, you just put that. DNA, literally those molecules into a sequencer, which is the same thing we use to detect the variants of SARS-CoV-2 and read out the ACs and Gs, which is then you just reverse the encoding from ACs and Gs to zeros and ones. So that's exact, it's, everything is already out. The technology is already out there. It's just a matter of the, the, the economics being, make, making sense for the, the applications we're looking for. Coming out of a lab, there's a common worry that you're a hammer looking for a nail because you, and, and I think you're a great example of this. It could have been a great example of this because you started this as an academic exercise. And whereas I typically hear, you know, good startups starting with, I identified a need. Yeah. For me, it's some aspect like other than the DNA the storage application of it, some part of the company is still hammer looking for a nail because I wanted to be bigger than that. The, the biggest advice if I could have one, even though I'm still young, I don't know what I'm doing, is definitely stop being in the lab and start talking to people. Have have some set of hypotheses you want to test and ask people, there is there a need for this and for this. Don't start a company unless you figured out there is a real use case for this. I think it doesn't doesn't matter if it's like the, the best thing to slice bread if there's no one's gonna pay for it. And so I think the iCore program is free. You can get fifty thousand dollars for it for just interviewing hundreds of customers. And I I, I think that's another non-dilutive funding you can you can put into in your pocket. You should do it tomorrow. Apply as quickly as possible because as deep tech people, that's probably the first thing you should do is the iCore because it's fifty thousand dollars and to test out customers and actually have a business model out of it. Uh, and that's so much money that, <laughs> so much value that you don't even know that you could have. So talking to customers definitely is the the biggest thing for me. At the end of the day, if there's, if there's no business, there's no business. It's better than failing at that point rather than spending five years of your time trying to build something that no one will be paying for. So I think that's like the biggest thing I've, I've learned doing the iCore program. I didn't even realize you had done iCore. I did that's the small version, the iCore Spark, and that was like already intense enough for me because I was doing it solo. So definitely don't go to do the iCore, the floor national level where you have to do hundred customer interviews. That's like intense. Even the iCore Spark in MIT was enough already intense for a solo founder, and but it gave a lot of uh, insight that I wouldn't be able to do if I just staring at the computer, Googling stuff. Because people tell you different things, li literally. So definitely go out and talk to customers. The iCourse is a really good mechanism for that. Awesome. And you know, the, the, the title of this podcast is Undiluted because we mm -hmm. really want to highlight and, and educate the world about non-dilutive mechanisms to build businesses, you know, in your case, working with a university. Yeah, I've been very fortunate to start this in an academic environment. So there's being, being having a support of the MIT environment's always helpful, especially if you're working with deep tech stuff that requires you to build something from scratch. And so we've been very fortunate with a lot of support from 
the government in, in, with the National Science Foundation and the Office of Naval Research. And I've been very fortunate uh, having learned how to work with the government and how to write grants with the government, how to execute successfully for the government. And I think that's something that not a lot of folks have the luxury on, but yeah. So uh, I feel like there's a lot to unpack there. Mm -hmm. Could you rewind us back to the point at which you got serious about pursuing this academically and, and potentially as a business? and the support you needed to build your business? Yeah, so let's start with the academic one, because that's been a long journey. So, we, I mean, I, I joined the lab 2016, and I, I wasn't really serious about DNA data storage. It was given to me as a side project, a burner, back burner project. So like, yeah, whatever. That's why I was, that's my reactions. But then I saw this paper from Microsoft that came out on it, and I, I got interested. And so we would look at how some research on this funded. We, we look at different areas. There was DARPA, which we're interested in this area. We didn't get it. Then there was the IARPA call, the, the intelligence version of the DARPA on this area. We didn't apply, but on, on that grant, simply because we didn't have time. I mean, DARPA and IARPA grants are really hard to write. And if you haven't written one, it's actually very, very stressful. And Can you say a bit more about that? Like, How much time did you spend on each one and how did oh. you decide? Yeah, the, the DARPA grant, oh my God, oh God, it's three weeks. Uh, um, yeah, it's, it's just talking to potential partners and then not only, then you have to have quotes and the, the budgeting part is the most stressful part for me. The technical portion, easy, like that's, I can do that uh, very, very easily, but the budgeting is hard. One thing that I've learned how to do since the DARPA grant and we wrote was the Hale-Meyer Hale Catechism. You need to make sure that it's you know pretty actionable it's pretty concrete and not vague and don't use vague terms and all that if the deadline is like a month uh in a month and you're planning to write a one month before you're already too late so you need to start like way earlier finding partners finding your quotes getting your budget really really clean and crisp and then i've written grants for the office of naval research and that's what we use to uh, develop the proof of concept. So on that ONR, the Office of Naval Research Grant, did you, how did you even know that that was available? Did you submit it? Did you submit something to them? Did they put out a topic requesting proposals? Yeah, there it's through a white paper. So you look at the Cognizant Program Manager, you reach out with a white paper and you see if they're interested or not, and then you get invited for a full proposal. It, it, it was something that was, or, or originally happening in the lab already and we knew how how this process works mm -hmm. but it always starts with a white paper and every time i think of something i want to propose with the government start with a white paper and, and i think that's the best way to initiate the conversations and how long did that take you know from the time that you submitted the white paper to the time that you got funded oh that took a while that took six to uh, i think it's a year i think for at least for the onr for the academic grants it's it took us a year um to get those that money so it's it slow money but it's free so you were at a lab and then you were funding your time there through this onr grant initially it sounds like it was initially just a academic exercise right we didn't mm. we didn't we didn't really real, realize as because this can be a company was when we, the paper got published, it's like, oh, wow, there's a lot of interest. Oh, I didn't realize how exciting this is. And when we got approached by VC, VCs, I was like, okay, <laughs> they realized it's going to be, there's something here. So if I understand the, the timeline correctly, so you were, you were at the lab, you got, you read this Microsoft paper, you got interested in it, you started, you wrote 
a, a white paper that you submitted to DARPA ARPA to try to fund research into it. Then you sent it to ONR. The research you did with the ONR money allowed you to write the white paper. The white paper then got published. I'm sorry, the academic paper got published. And that's when the VC started coming in. Is, did I articulate that correctly? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and National Science Foundation also provided some more cash. Salaries are probably like the biggest chunk of money that, that would, uh, is rather than the chemicals. And, and and what was the process for the National Science Foundation? Was that an SBIR? No, it was an academic grant too. This is all academic still. I'll, I'll go to the SBIR later. Gotcha. But it was all academic. We had some funding that was adjacent to it. And so we sort of used that. It wasn't like a very linear success story. We failed a lot to get to where we are. So we had to, unfortunately, had to waste a fair bit of taxpayer money in the beginning because we tried a lot of different things. We just failed. I mean, that's the nature of science and that's where you make risks. And End of the day, we got you failed ten thousand times, but you only need one to make it work, and that's we found that one, and that's how we it started for us. So I mean, we had a lot of bunch of other funding, but generally, the ONR has been the most the big supporter, and next to the National Science Foundation. So that takes you up to this moment where you publish a paper, you get a lot of interest back. And is, is that the moment when you, you, it sounds like you started to make the mental switch from this being an academic exercise to being a, a commercial exercise? Yeah. yeah. I wasn't sure about having a business in the beginning. Like we, we talked about it back in 2019, I want to say, October 2019, about having this as a startup. Wasn't sure because the business model doesn't make sense yet, or there was no business model. And I don't know. It's like there's a lot of interest. It's very risky technically because there's a lot of, unknowns but i didn't realize what we proved out until like other folks talk about what we proved out to us so like it was actually talking to uh, other folks who explained to me what i did <laughs> how i realized well, i did that and so okay so it, it, it there is something to it so like 2020 was a bit of a pivotal moment uh, when we actually publish in a preprint server, this is like before you actually publish in a, in a, in a archival journal. And we got some folks who are interested in it. And it, it was quite something. I didn't realize what I did until other people told me what I did. For me, it was it's all academic exercise. And so I realized in the beginning that there was, it was bigger than the storage. If I can store every nucleic acid in the, basically from the environment, nucleic acids such as DNA, but also RNA is like the, the genome of the virus that we're, that's the reason why we're talking here in, in a Zoom or in a video cast. It's because of that, that RNA. And so storing every, all those nucleic acids and being able to catalog that was to me a very titillating idea. And and I thought like, that's that's bigger than the data storage. And so there, and you, you just start, the business cases start to popping out and, and, and it got us to a point where Maybe you should start a startup like really soon. And then during at that point at 2022, uh, 2020 and 2021, I started writing SBIR grants because why not? I'm really good at writing grants. I can do it on my own. And so I wrote two of them and it's, I mean, it's only 15 pages. So that's nothing. We write papers like 40, 50 pages. And so it was pretty straightforward to me. Again, given my experience with uh, our writing grants in the lab, my PI has given me a lot of freedom to do and a lot of guidance. So I got really good at it to a point that I'm, I'm I like, my hands are always like looking for grants nowadays because <laughs> it's just so fun to write them. So you've had this great foundational layer of non-dilutive funding. 
But have you thought about the the ratio of dilutive to non-dilutive, the roles that each play, and how has it been engaging the VC community? Yeah, for me, it's always, I just wanted to use the SBAR for a lot of innovative research. The only way you can be always be ahead is to just keep, keep innovating. So that's why I always think about the SBAR as a mechanism to do that. VCs won't let you do that. Like, you know, like you have to make the business tomorrow. Like, yeah, you have to make 10x of my investment by year five. With non-dilutive funding, like grants, you have a lot of uh, freedom to um, innovate. Not necessarily like complete freedom, but because you have to have a specific innovation in mind. But at least you can have a lot of risk taking you can do with some money. It's not a lot of money. It's going to be like 256K for NSF phase one and NIH phase one, but allows you to do a lot of freedom. And so where I see the, the dilutive funding comes into place for me to get a lot more people to like a, a CEO or some COO and other research associates, given the technology we have right now, start building the business cases for that. But then have a portion of the company still working on innovative technologies that you want to be, you want to make sure you're created a deep, uh, like a very big moat and very deep moat on your technology to make sure that no one can touch you. And that's, that's always, that's, it's hard to do with just VC funding. So uh, this is an unfair question, but roughly how much money do you think you've gotten from non-dilutive sources? Oh, wow. Well, if, you, if you start with academic ones, it's probably, it's not my lab, but it's my, my, my PI's lab. So it's going to get, if I add that, like 500K on the ONR, sorry, maybe a billion on the ONR, and then a million on the NSF, like this is all academic. And then mm-hmm. from what I got from you know, post-academic, it's going to be like, do you want to, like 500, it's 260K roughly. So that's 520K total from non-dilutive funding for two phase ones. So all in, what is that, maybe a million? Yeah, probably two million if you include the, uh, the academic grants that from the academic lab. So that's, that's, number one, that's pretty amazing. So second part of this question, what has that $2 million allowed you to do? One is like it get us to a proof of concept without that funding. If, if just on the academic one, not focus on the SBR one, for now, but for just the academic one, it, it got the circle of concept without funding. Yeah, there's really no basis to a company. There's no foundation for the company to begin with because there's no technology to begin with. Uh, I'm not building an app. I'm a deep tech person. There's no company, period, without that initial um, investment and trust from the government on the academic uh, research. And the follow-up is just the follow-up SBAR is just going to move the needle on the technology becoming much better than what it is right now, the version two or the the beta version of our technology. It's going to be much, much more exciting and it's going to be more scalable. And, and, and without that funding, I think we won't, we won't be able to do the next generation of the, like the next iteration that will get us closer mm-hmm. to a more realizable, like not realizable, but like probably I would say the more practical version of our technology if without that, you know, SBAR funding. That's a really compelling story. It's this, this highly risk tolerant long-term capital from the government has allowed you to build this foundation. And given this foundation, now that you're reaching out to VCs, how are the VCs reacting to this government funded base that you're building off of? Yeah, they're pretty excited about it. They're always encouraged to get non-dilutive funding. So I think the general consensus is just get it if you can. It's less dilutive on you and it's less you know, money uh, risking for us. 
Uh, it's definitely a, a positive. Uh, I wouldn't say it's a negative. I, I've never heard of any of these saying not you should not uh, try to get SBAR funding. But relying on government as your customer was always been a funny conversation with VCs because they the government's slow and but that's a different story. Can you? explain that because I think it's a little bit of a subtle difference between government as funder and government as customer. Yeah, government as customer is different. Government customer is, wow, one, A, you need to figure out who to talk to. There's, there's a huge bureaucracy, a red tape that you have to go through to find the right people. And then going through the beauty of this, like they, they all reply. <laughs> I think it's, I don't know if it's a government mandate. They have to reply to us and to a public person, but anyway, they all reply. And so you, need, you just need to figure out who to talk to and be really proactive in, in following up and asking for connections, stuff like that. If you're not proactive, you're not going to get anywhere. So government's a customer. I've been warned about two things. One, they're really slow and because uh, we have a technology and want to adapt their technology to them for their use cases. They're really slow at getting that. It can take a year or so to just even get the paperwork done or something like that. So they're really slow and slow money. So there's a lot of there's a lot of overhead work they have to do to get that money. It's not as easy as people would think as like for them as a customer, rather com compared to say, I don't know. I haven't had any experience with them as a customer, but I've been warned about having only government as a customer. So if I can you know, just provide my own overlay on this. So I, th I think this is one of the things that really confused me when I was first getting into the federal market is that the federal government buys a tremendous amount of stuff. They're buying everything from fighter jets to copy paper. In your case, you're saying, hey, I'm being funded by the Office of Naval Research. Therefore, the Navy is going to be my customer. And that's not no, no. the case. Right. That's correct. Yeah. It's not, they don't just want a piece of the technology. They want a, they want the whole component. And if you have SBAR, that doesn't mean they're their customer. Is there anybody that if they're listening, if they have connections, they should think about you? One thing I've learned from other founders here in the accelerator is you never say you're never raising. So you just, I'm always raising, but I'm really interested in folks. It's just building a relationship because I just, money is other thing, but having mentoring, because I don't, I don't know jack shit what I'm doing. I'm, I've been a band scientist. So I'm like, I'm learning the ropes of how building a startup is and all that. And so like VCs who are really interested in mentoring, aspiring technical founders to become successful entrepreneurs. Well, I think I'll be very grateful for those introductions and like saying hi to me or just, just having a cup of coffee. I think that for me is very important right now, especially where, I, where the startup is right now at this moment, because I need a lot of guidance. I need to know where to go. Most this is, I think, a lot of deep tech startups who are been the lab for a very long time is struggling with this, like where to go next. I was curious, what do you think the future looks like for Cash DNA? Oh yeah, so I mean, for the future of Cash DNA, I'm currently um, in an accelerator right now. I've always been an academic, and so getting out of the bench is scary, but at the same time, it's the most exciting thing because it's. Again, different. From, always look for different stuff in, in my life. And so for me, it's just I keep on building to the, towards the, that, that vision of being in storage. So a lot of forecasts to be done. We'd, hopefully with the support of the government and private funding, though, we get to the point where we're just one algorithm away from a fully functional DNA storage. You can start computing with it. It was uh, a computer device you've had for a very long time. So I think that's going to be a long way to go. But I think we're at this stage where we're, we've developed at least some of the proof of concept that, that this ideas would work. I think it's, it's, uh, it's high time for us to start thinking about how do we get to a point where the average Joe can use this. To, and I think that's the most exciting thing because if it gets to a point 
to where your work, I'm, I've been a bench scientist my entire life and seeing my work actually in the hands of people who are the average person is going to be, to me, like that's like success of my version of success. It's not about the billion dollar exit or whatever. I think just seeing it, you, people using it is, as, as I think, the most compelling future for me. As, or at least that's, that's my compelling future. I think my vision for cash, but of course, for VCs who are listening, like, of course, billion dollar exit. No. <laughs> that was James Vidal from Cash DNA. And we know that understanding and applying for federal funding can be complicated. So please visit Undiluted on FedScout.com to hear more founder stories and get guides, checklists, and Q&A forums to help you explore federal funding. We release new episodes each week, so please like, follow, and subscribe to make sure you get alerts when new episodes are released. And thank you for listening. Wait, 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 wait.